Good morning. If you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, we'll start at verse 14 today. Hopefully you're already there because we just read it. Uh, but that's what we're going to be covering today. I wanted to start out by saying, uh, well, th- this is going to be a shorter sermon than, than typical, uh, than usual. Last night, um, 6 o'clock rolled around and I was still here. Glad to see that you guys are all still here too. I'm not alone. <laughs> Um, no, I'm kidding. But in, in all seriousness, we, we really need to be praying for, um, for the followers of that guy. Um, they, they, uh, they all do affirm that Jesus is Lord, and they all do affirm that God raised Jesus from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins. So anybody who proclaims that, anybody who believes that, uh, that the, the second person of the Trinity was raised for the forgiveness of our sins and that our sins are forgiven by grace through faith in Jesus alone. They are our sibling in Christ. So I do want to make sure that, yeah, you know, it's fun to, to make light of the whole situation. But at the same time, anybody who says that is our brother and sister. And whether, um, you know, whether they believe some crazy things on the side or not, if they have those beliefs in Jesus, uh, they are our brothers and sisters. So I, I do want to make sure that I remind you guys uh, it's okay to have a little bit of fun poking fun at them, but be sensitive to the fact that there are going to be some people who might be falling away from their faith because of this. Anyway, uh, for those of you who follow me on Facebook, anybody here follow me on Facebook? I know we've got a couple of you guys. Uh, you might have seen this week that I got a little bit frustrated with a certain book that I was reading. Uh, this book is talking about uh, cultural shifts and cultural changes and how quickly it happens today. And the book starts off uh, talking about how it used to be that, you know, you'd have one village over here, and, you know, you go 20, 30 miles over here, you have another village, and, you know, maybe 20, 30 miles this way, you have another village. And maybe they're all doing the same types of things like hunting or something like that. But they all have different ways of doing it. And so you might have one village... Uh, that has kind of a, an, an older way of doing things, whereas this other village over here, they have a different way that's more efficient of hunting. Maybe they, they have a different way of sharpening their arrows or whatever. And uh, so really what you'd see is that each village would have their own way of doing things until communication was made. You know, th- there would be some type of interaction. You know, somebody from the less efficient village goes to the more efficient village, and they see how they're doing it. So they go back to their village and say, you know, this is, this is how we should be doing it. And so progress was, was made, but it was made really slowly because progress comes as communication and ideas are communicated, as, as communication is made and, and ideas are communicated. Well, you, you fast forward to today, and you can see, you know, the authors are pointing out, you can see why change is happening very fast. You know, it used to be that you'd have to wait years before you'd have communication between, you know, different areas of the country. But today, as soon as information is made available, you've got a global audience instantly. And so things change, uh, the culture changes very quickly today. And the point that, that the authors were really trying to make was, uh, there, are, there are some churches out there that have some, uh, some older ways of doing things that the culture no longer relates to. And I'm reading it kind of, I'm, I'm a skeptical reader, um, and, and I, I knew that this book would, would challenge me, um, but I, I reached a point where I finally said, enough is enough, this is a bunch of junk. Uh, as you guys remember last week, we were talking about you know, submitting to your leaders and everything, uh, o- obeying your leaders, submitting to them, honoring them. Um, respecting them, valuing them, you know, whatever word you want to put in there. That's what we talked about last week. 
So maybe it's kind of funny that I came across this this week. Uh, in the middle of the second chapter, these guys are talking about you know the, this whole paradigm shift for churches. And what they do to illustrate their point is they, they uh, refer to a letter that they received from a guy who used to be an associate pastor who had read one of their earlier books uh, that was written, I think, in either 2004 or 2005. But he, he had gotten all these new ideas uh, in 2004, 2005, or whenever, uh, for, for new ways to, to minister in the church. And so, uh, so he, he writes this. He, he, he talks about how he goes to his senior pastor, and he says, Pastor, I've got these great ideas, these, these great new ways of, of doing things. And the pastor, for, for whatever reason, says, not now. I don't, I don't think we're ready for that, so we're not going to do that now. And so the, uh, the associate pastor writes, and I, and I quote, so I, gently, so I kept gently trying to be a visionary and lead by example. And he goes on to say that he, he did what he was proposing to the senior pastor after all, without the senior pastor's permission. And he goes on to write, quote, After 14 years of ministry, you would have thought that I would have learned how to be institutionalized. Nope, haven't learned that yet. So after 14 years, I got the boot and was shown the door. End quote. And I thought, okay, so the senior pastor is you know, going right along with what we were talking about last week, more or less. But the response of the authors and the reason I put this book down and started posting on Facebook about how frustrated I was with, uh, with this book... Um, the, the, the response of the authors was, it's heartbreaking to read a story like that. They totally just sympathized with him. The poor guy got fired for really disobeying what he was told by, by the person who God had put over him. So maybe it's just me, but I think it's kind of funny that I came across that this week. Uh, funny in a way, but I mean, um, you know, the week after I'd given a message on submitting to your, your leaders. But... What we saw last week is that the first ingredient, and actually a long list of ingredients that Paul's going to give us in the the ingredients for a healthy church, was this idea of submitting to to leadership. So were the ideas that this associate pastor had, uh, were were those bad ideas? I, I don't really know. I don't know the specifics of what he was trying to do. So maybe they were good, maybe they were bad. But did he do what Paul has instructed all of us? even those in leadership positions, to do. Did he submit? No, he didn't. Is it necessary that he does? Yeah. Yeah, it is, because that's how we have this peace with one another that Paul was talking about. Instead, he was kind of acting like a rogue soldier. Now, Paul knows that there's a tendency for that to pop up in the church. So he's going to address that today. Is it essential that we be obedient to what he's just told us? Absolutely, if we're going to live at peace with one another. So Paul continues, giving us a list of ingredients of a healthy church, writing in verses 14 and 15 here. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one repays evil with evil for evil, or see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. So Paul starts this off by saying, we urge you, brethren. Who's he talking to? Is he just talking to church leadership at this point, or is he talking to everyone in general? He's talking to everyone in general here, right? So Paul's told us to live at peace with one another. Keep that in mind. And with that in mind, we see that Paul is going to actually give us three things in this passage that we all 
need to be doing, everybody needs to be doing, if we're going to keep the peace, the unity with one another and avoid chaos. So the first thing he tells us is to admonish the unruly. What does it mean to admonish? It means you, you step in, you confront, you correct somebody who is out of line. It's to give somebody counsel against doing a, a, a particular thing. If someone's doing something that they shouldn't be doing and you admonish them, you're basically telling them, hey, cut it out. You've you got to stop doing that. That's what it means to admonish. But who are we supposed to be admonishing? The unruly. That is, the disorderly. And depending on which, uh, which translation you have, sometimes it gets translated as uh, disorderly. It's the person who's doing their own thing and they're refusing to submit to those whom God has placed above them in church leadership. In, in the Greek, you would find that this would be a word, uh, unruly, it would be a word that would describe a soldier who's refusing to carry out the orders of their commanding officer. Maybe they wouldn't do anything and they'd stand by idly. Uh, maybe they would just do the opposite. But whatever the case, they're refusing to carry out instructions. And in the context of our text here in 1 Thessalonians, it's referring to someone who is intentionally disobedient when it comes to the instruction to submit. Instead, they walk to the beat of their own drum. And and it's kind of funny if you think about it. That's what society encourages. Walk to the beat of your own drum. Travel the, the unbeaten path. No, that's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying, get in line with everybody else. And if somebody's not in line, correct them. Admonish them. And by the way, who has the responsibility of doing that? Everyone. Everyone has the responsibility of keeping an eye on everybody else. It's not just church leadership. Now, there's a tendency uh, for people to say, well, if you're not going to get in line, I'm, I'm going I'm to tell the pastor. <laughs> and, and to an extent, that, that's, a, that's okay. I'm going to talk about that here in just a minute. But I do want to remind you guys that the responsibility is not on me or anybody else in church leadership. It's on you. If you see somebody who is acting unruly. If, if, and if, if you see it, I would encourage you to carry out the method of church discipline that Jesus gave us in Matthew 18. First, you go to them, and you tell them in private, hey, knock it off. You know, get yourself in line. Turn, turn yourself so that you're, you're in line with everybody else. If they don't do it, you're supposed to bring two or three witnesses. At that point, it might be a good thing to bring somebody from church leadership if they won't listen to you privately. At that point, it's something that I'm open to. I I will walk through that with you. And then, if they still won't repent or get in line, if they they still continue being unruly, at that point, you bring it to the whole church, and you let everybody know what they're doing. So that's, that's what it means to admonish the unruly. The second thing he tells us to do is to encourage the faint hearted. Encourage. And we all love encouragement, right? I think God designed us to actually need encouragement. It literally means to build courage into somebody, to instill courage in someone who doesn't have it. So into whom are we supposed to instill this courage? Paul says the faint-hearted. Kind of interesting word there. If we were to translate it literally, it would say the small-souled, somebody whose soul is small. But it's referring to somebody who feels fearful, somebody who's afraid to do what God has called them 
to do. Or, or maybe they, they just don't feel adequate. Maybe they feel uh, like they're questioning their giftedness. Like, I'm, I'm not sure exactly where I fit in here. Maybe they're questioning their salvation. Whatever it is, whatever it is, they are faint-hearted. They're, they're afraid. And our instruction is to instill courage in them because they don't have it. Help them find their place. Help them figure out where they fit in to the body. Assure them that they're loved, first of all, and then tell them where you think they're, they're gifted. Tell them their, their area of giftedness as you see it. In fact, I would say there's no better way to find out what your giftedness is than to have the counsel of some wise people who love Jesus tell you, this is what I see your gifting as. So assure them that they not only have a place in the body, but help them figure out what that place might be. If somebody is fearful or, or shying away for any reason from what God has designed them to do and called them to do, help them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 16, Paul writes this. He says, If the ear says, Because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. In other words, somebody will say, You know what? I'm... I'm not, a, I'm not a pastor, so I, I'm not sure that I really belong here. I don't have the gift of, of teaching, or I don't have the gift of evangelism. I'm a horrible evangelist, so I'm not sure that I really have a place here. The thing is, people really feel that way, and I, I hope none of you feel that way, that you don't have a place that you belong here, a, a, a function that God has designed you for in this body. But people like this, they, they feel like they don't have a place, and so they don't try, or they're afraid to try. Instead of wearing their jersey on game day, they're just happy to get a seat in the nosebleeds and watch the game from the sidelines. And they become a spectator instead of a participant. So the instruction here is to give somebody the courage to get on the field on game day. The next thing Paul tells us to do is to help the weak. Now is this referring to somebody who is physically weak or weak in their faith, I'd say yes. Both. Weak in any way. If there, if there is a weakness in somebody, no matter what kind of weakness it might be, the encourage is to help them. In the context, I think it's probably referring to somebody who doesn't have a faith that's strong enough to withstand the trials of life. We know the Thessalonians were being persecuted, and there might have been some people who would have said, you know what, this isn't for me. I, I'm not sure that I really believe this stuff. I don't know if it's worth being persecuted or, or losing everything over. So the instruction is to help them. And, I, and by the way, this isn't just talking about new believers. Somebody can be a believer for a long, long time and still be weak. I've got a good friend who gave his life to the Lord years ago. But to this day, he struggles. He, he's weak with understanding some things that I personally have, have absolutely no problem wrapping my mind around. So we're supposed to help people like that. The author of Hebrews said this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, speaking to everyone here, speaking to the body, therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. He's talking about the body of Christ. If there's somebody who is out of place or feeling like they're out of place, help them. If they are weak, 
Help them. And do you, do you know why this, this type of help usually doesn't come? Well, first of all, some people don't, don't ask for it. What they're hoping, honestly, is that somebody will just notice. But a lot of Christians in our culture live typical American lives, if we're being honest, where they've got their schedule and they've got to stay with it. And they're busy. They schedule from sunup to sundown, and there's really no time in between. They don't have the time to notice when somebody needs help because they've got to get one kid to soccer practice and the other kid to piano rehearsal at the same time. They've got to get them picked up and home in time for dinner at 7 so that they can have the kids in bed by 8 so that they can finally unwind between 8 and 9 and watch their favorite TV show from 9 till 10 and then they go to bed. So the instruction in the previous chapter was to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And you know what prevents us from leading that quiet life? Busyness. Being busy. Being too busy to notice when somebody needs help. See, a lot of us get so caught up in being busy and doing activities in life that we neglect the community that God has designed us to be. And so we don't become the type of community that builds and strengthens itself. May we never be one of those churches where on any given Sunday people are saying, hey, I'll see you next Sunday as they go out the door. That's not the kind of community that God has designed us or called us to be. We're a community that should need each other and should notice each other so that we can help each other, so that we can build each other up. So we've seen here three types of Christians who need specific types of help. For the unruly, admonish them or or exhort them. For the faint-hearted, encouragement. And for the weak, whatever type of weakness that might be, help. Just help in general. Now that sounds like a tall order, and it it certainly can be. Um, If if, if you were to really focus on these three commands, boy, that that could, you could write books about that. Um, But Paul tells us three things that we'll need in order to do that. Um, and you'll see uh, that there's a, in, in your translation, there's probably a period between, um, right before, be patient with everyone. But I would say that this is a separate command. Uh, this really doesn't flow necessarily with, with help the weak. Um, but this is a, a command in and of itself. Be patient with everyone. That's something that we will need if we're going to do what he's just instructed us to do. Be patient with everyone. Patience is the virtuous task of seeing somebody who needs help and going through it with them over and over and over and over until they get it, until they're strong enough to get it on their own. For somebody who is unruly or disorderly, um, that can be especially difficult because really they, they, they tend to have type of attitude of, well, if you don't like it too bad, I'll just write you off anyway. So it, it, can, be, it can really test our patience when you come across somebody who's like that. But Paul's instruction is to be patient with everyone. With everyone. Now, is that an easy thing to do? No. And, and if, you, if you think it's easy to do, come live with me for a week, because trust me, I will, I will test your patience. It's not an easy thing to do. That's why it's a virtuous task. Virtues don't come easy. But help the weak and be patient with everyone. Second thing he tells us to do. See that no one 
repays another with evil for evil. See, anytime you enter into a group of people, a community of people, actions are going to be misinterpreted, words are going to be misunderstood, feelings are going to get hurt, people are, are going to get hurt anytime you're in a community of people. And there's this human tendency that we have to repay evil for evil. If somebody hurts me, I'm going to hurt them back. The instruction here is, again, for all of us to make sure that nobody is doing that. Nobody is repaying evil for evil. Make sure that nobody's seeking revenge. Uh, the third thing that he tells us is always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Again, anytime you enter into a community of people, you're going to have people who have different preferences. It is absolutely unavoidable. There are going to be people who like things done one way, and it's going to be completely contrary to other people who like things done another way, right? You might say, well, you know, I like this type of music, so we should play this type of music, or I like the the offering before the sermon, so we should have the offering before the sermon, or I like closing with a worship song instead of prayer, so we should close with a worship song instead of prayer. You get the point. People are, are basing their whole perspective of what we should do based on personal preference. So the instruction here is not to think that way. Don't think, I want this, I want that. Think in in terms of the group. Think in terms of what's best for everybody here. What will best facilitate what God has called us to do? It means putting the interests of the flock before the interests of the sheep. Thinking externally instead of internally. Now, this concludes Paul's instructions for conduct between Christians. It's kind of a brief list, but he's going to change gears here now, and he's going to focus on a set of instructions uh, that deal with our response to God. So he writes in um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, Rejoice always. Now, if there's one verse that you should probably memorize and have no trouble re- uh, remembering, it's this one. It's, it's, it's tied for the shortest verse in the Bible with Jesus wept. You can remember this. Just, uh, yeah. Rejoice always. And sometimes that's a really easy thing to do, right? Because when life is, is good, when, when we're healthy, and when you know, we've got enough money in the bank, we're like, God, you're so good. But then what about when life isn't so good? What about when you get laid off due to downsizing? What about when you're facing a terminal illness? What about when your kids are sick? What about when your kid, What about when some kids are making fun of your kids at school? How do you respond to that? Let me just say that when kids make fun of my kids and I hear about it, man, I'm ready to fight, you know? But no, that's not what the instruction is. The instruction is to rejoice. Rejoice even in the midst of hard times. The fact is that our world is filled with enough pressures, enough distractions to make the average person just crack, if you let it. But Paul says, rejoice always. He's, and if you look at what James said, James says in James chapter 1, verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. What? When life gets hard, consider it joy? Are you kidding? Because you know what people tend to do? When life gets hard, it's kind of another one of those human knee-jerk reactions. They say, God, how can you let this happen to me? 
How can I be going through this if I'm being faithful to you? And it gets, it's kind of a superstition that as long as you're good to God, as long as you're faithful to God, life is just going to be easy. So people start blaming God. Or they'll say, God, why are you doing this to me? No, that's not the response. The response is not to blame God. The response is to consider it a joy. Why? He tells us in the next verse, James chapter 1, verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So if there's something that's testing your faith, whether that's losing your job, facing a terminal illness, or somebody making fun of your kids at school, you know that it's a good thing. Ultimately, it doesn't feel good at the time, but someday you'll be able to look back and say, that was, that was a character-building moment right there. If your faith is being tested, consider it joy, because when you come out of the other side of that situation, you'll have something that you need. Endurance. Steadfastness. Why does that matter? Verse 4, James chapter 1, verse 4. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, as you look back on your life, think about a hard situation that you were in. You know what? Think about the hardest situation that you were in. And my challenge to you would be to look for God in that situation. What was God doing in that situation? Because honestly, I've gone through some, some really hard times in life. And as I look back and reflect on those times when I was, I was hurt, I was, I was angry, I was brokenhearted. And when I look back on those times, I see that God was right there drawing me closer to him, comforting me, sustaining me, strengthening me, getting me through those times. And the more I I sought after him and the more I sought my shelter and my comfort in him, the closer I, I drew to him. The closer I drew to him, the more clearly I could hear when he spoke to me. Just like a jeweler will use fire to burn away impurities from precious metals, God will use trials in your life to burn away things that distract you from him, things that hinder you from growing in him. Another word that you might get from uh, John chapter 15 is pruning. If you're not bearing fruit, and we could all be bearing more fruit if if we're being honest. Myself, I'm at the top of the list. We could all be bearing more fruit. If you're not bearing as much fruit as God has designed you for, you will be pruned. And praise the Lord. It's a painful process, but you'll bear more fruit. And that's really what matters. So rejoice always in good times and in bad, because in the long term, you can be sure that God is working all things for the good of those who love him. Romans 8.28. Next command that he gives us, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, is pray without ceasing. Now, what is, what is prayer? It's communication with God. If you, if you were to ask John Piper what prayer is, he would tell you that it's, it's like a walkie-talkie between an infantry and headquarters. Now, praying without ceasing, you might read that and say, well, that seems impossible. I mean, come on, God. Um, I've got I've to sleep. I've got to have a life here. I've, I've got to do things. I can't just pray all the time. And so it would be easy for us to say, well, Paul doesn't mean that literally, right? He's not literally saying Pray without ceasing, is he? I would say, yes, he is. He means it literally. Because whenever you communicate with somebody, 
there are two parts of communication. There's speaking, and there's listening. Speaking and listening. When was the last time you can say you really communicated with somebody without taking the time to listen to them? No, that's, that's a monologue. Prayer is a dialogue. It's a dialogue. It's a conversation. Should you let your, pra- uh, your prayer requests be known to God? Absolutely. Should it stop there? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, I would say that my prayer life is 50% talking at the most and at least 50% listening. In fact, it's probably more a case of 75% listening, 25% talking. Because my opinion is that God actually has better things to say than I do, so I do more listening than talking. So it's both. It's speaking and it's listening. And if you're not taking the time to listen to God, there's something missing there. You might not always be able to speak to God, but you can and you should always be listening to God. And I think that's what it means when Paul says, pray without ceasing. Yeah, spend some time talking, spend the rest of the time listening. And really, when you consider all of the needs in the world, all the needs of of, of the church body and the other churches in the community, you will never, ever run out of things to pray about. Never. It's not possible. By the way, one one final note about prayer. Don't just pray before a meal. You know, I've known some people uh, who, you know, most of their prayer time uh, comes right before a meal. And I think, you know, if I was God, my command would have been, eat all the time. Please. (laughs) Eat as many meals, eat at least six, seven, eight meals a day so that you spend more time talking to me. So don't just pray right before a meal. Pray without ceasing. So every situation is a situation that can can drive us to prayer. Let me give you some examples. Failure should drive us to prayer. But so should success. Despair. Anxiety. Joy. Disappointments. Decisions. Those are all things that should lead, lead us to prayer. Temptation. Temptation should lead us to prayer above and beyond anything. Temptation to sin should always lead us to prayer. And you know what? This is just the tip of the iceberg because these are all things that just relate to you. What about when you're praying for others? Yeah, other people have all these needs. And you have the ability to go before God and, ask, and pray on their behalf. In Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes this. He says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, or which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In everything, by prayer and supplication. Everything. Pray. It doesn't doesn't mean that it has to be a long, drawn-out prayer. You don't even have to to say, Lord, I come before you in the name of Jesus. No, it, it can just be, boom. God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? It doesn't have to be a long, drawn-out prayer. It doesn't have to be more than two seconds when you make a request known to God. It can be. It can, it can be as long as you want, or it can be as short as you want. If you're listening and talking, you'll know when to talk because, yeah, it's just part of the conversation. Martin Luther said this, though. He said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. 
We've got this, this spirit of God inside each one of us that gives us direction, that gives us strength, that gives us sustenance, and we're supposed to be relying on that. And if you love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then of course praying to him is a no-brainer. Can you imagine uh, what, what a marriage would look like if you talked to your spouse for uh, one hour every week on Sunday mornings and that was it? See you next week. But the sad fact is, for a lot of people, that's what their relationship with God looks like. Is anybody in here the bride of Christ? Yeah, we all are. Amen. Yeah. That's the type of relationship God's asking us to have with him. Conversation. And do you ever wonder what either you have in your life that you want to get rid of or things that you don't have because you haven't asked? James says this. James says in James chapter 4, verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Do you ever wonder what you could have if you would just ask for it? Just something to think about. Now remember, by the way, that prayer is not our attempt at manipulating God. Some people approach prayer like God is this cosmic slot machine that pays off with every spin. No, God's not like that. The purpose of prayer is not to manipulate God. It's to be in communion and fellowship with God. It's to line us up with his will, not to enforce our will on him. And he answers every prayer. But remember that sometimes the answer is no, or not now. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, it's not my business to try to get God to think like me. It's my business to try to think like him through prayer and meditation. Meditation is that listening aspect. I'm not talking about like the New Age meditation or Eastern philosophy meditation. The purpose of that is to empty your mind of any thoughts. That's not the purpose of listening. That's not the, the purpose of Christian meditation. The, the, the purpose of meditation for us is to think about what God has said and to listen to what God is saying. Don't empty your mind. And that concludes our lesson today, but what, what you're going to see is that we've got different stations set up around the church for praying, for praying without, ideas for praying without ceasing. And what I want you to do is every uh, couple or family, I want you to come up to the piano here and pick up one of these. This is a checklist of things, of stations that we have set up around the sanctuary. Let me explain this one for you real quick. This is our station for the lost. This is for anyone that you know, whether they're in this community or not. You know, maybe they live someplace uh, you know, far away. Maybe they live in another state or whatever. If you know somebody who doesn't know Jesus, write their name here. And not just one necessarily. As many people as you want, as you want to list here. Write their name here. Because the truth is each one of us should know people who don't know Jesus. That's part of the Great Commission. If you don't know anybody who doesn't know Jesus, pray about God opening those opportunities for you to meet people who don't know Jesus. But put people here that you don't know, or that you do know, that don't know Jesus, and what we're going to do is we're going to hang this up in a public place so that every time we come in, we're praying for the lost. We're praying for people who need to know Jesus. And it's something that we are going to be intentional as, as leadership and as a body of believers 
of followers of Jesus. It's something that we're going to be doing together. And let us know if somebody that, that you have on here comes to know Jesus, because that, that's, that's the whole purpose of this, is to keep this in the front of our minds so that every time we walk by it, we remember that person. Now, I can tell you right now, I've got, I've, I've got a couple people that I'm going to put on here. I have them in, in the front of my mind. But here's what I want you to do. As you go to the stations, uh, and there are two of them out here in, uh, in the lobby area, uh, take time, especially at the missions table, to read about what our missionaries are doing so that you can pray specifically for them. Um, but at each station, you'll find stickers. And if, if you want, you can, uh, one sticker per, per family or, or couple or whatever or, or person. Um, and you can, there's a little space for you to put it. If you want, next to the lost, put your friend's name or your, your relative's name who doesn't know Jesus. And uh, take this home with you. And, and, rem- and keep yourself mindful of people that you need to be praying for. So with that said, I don't know how long this is going to last. I know that the sermon was less than half an hour, though. The last few weeks, I've preached over 50 minutes each week. <laughs> so, uh, so this is a little bit different, but this is a time for us to really focus on what Paul is instructing us to do here, to pray without ceasing. So we're going to play some music. I would ask that when you are done going to the different uh, stations, to return to your seat. It's not a time necessarily to be social or, or anything like that. We'll do that after the service, um, as, as always. But uh, return to your seat and continue praying. And um, I'll close this up with a word of prayer here as soon as it looks like everybody's done. And then we'll close, uh, as usual, with, uh, with a hymn and, and benediction and everything. So take some time to be praying for each one of the stations. And we'll get back together in a few minutes. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.